All right, I've entitled uh, this uh, sermon today, When Does Jesus Become High Priest? It's a question, and it may not sound like a very important question, but I think there's a lot riding on how we answer. Um, I'm going to claim that we focused many times too exclusively on the death of Christ. And then what arises, or maybe the, I'm not sure where the chicken and egg are in this, but we've focused then also then too much on the law. In a Lutheran uh, understanding, you know, we get the idea of an imputed righteousness, a kind of theoretical righteousness, an idea of a kind of theoretical understanding. All of this, I think, is connected to a misunderstanding of Jesus' high priesthood. Also, the notion of penal substitution. That is, you know, when we ask the question, why did Jesus die? He, uh, the answer in penal substitution is that he took the penalty in our place. I think that's an inadequate answer. But in fact, the high priesthood of Christ is a fullness of, of how he saves us. And it, it, it is not exclusive to his death. But it's inclusive of his life, his resurrection and ascension. That is, it's the whole movement of the life and death and resurrection that is part of the salvation work of Christ. Uh, Let me state it uh, almost too strongly. And that is to say his death alone does not save. Uh, Of course, we can talk about, and the, the writers of the New Testament will talk about the death of Christ synecdically, to refer to then the entire work of Christ. And so this is going to make a huge difference. I'm just telling you why this sermon makes a difference or why it makes a difference uh, when Jesus became high priest because it's going to determine what we do, how we live this faith out. And the idea is that we do have to live it out, that salvation is a practice that we begin to enjoy as we follow Jesus. So it is not that Jesus died so that we do not have to. He died that we might take up our cross and follow him. That is that we might begin to enjoy a resurrection life now. Let me read just a section of chapter 5 from verse 1 to 6. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but he receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. From chapter 4 that we talked about last time, we see that Jesus was without sin. And in chapter 5 we read that he was made perfect. What, if anything, do these two ideas have to do with our salvation? Because his perfection then is going to be connected to his high priesthood. 
The danger is simply to understand uh, who Jesus is or the basis of his high priesthood on the basis of the Old Testament sacrifices. I think this is, in fact, to go about at it backward. It misunderstands, and that's, this is what happened historically, it's misunderstood the Day of Atonement and the significance of the uh, Yom Kippur sacrifices. And so it misinterprets, there's a kind of misinterpretation of the meaning of the death of Christ. So when it says, you know, that Jesus is the lamb without blemish, uh, the explanation here that it is in connection with his being made perfect. But I think we're going to understand actually what that perfection is, that unblemished lamb or that unblemished sacrifice is, by understanding who Christ is. If we've understood that sin, as in chapter 2, is an orientation to death, that it is the fear of death, as described, you know, that uh, the Satan controls us in and through this slavery. And we understand that Jesus did not give in to this orientation. That is, he's conquered it. His being without sin has to do with his life's orientation more than anything else. And just as a footnote here, I would say that's the true understanding of Yom Kippur, that the sacrifice of atonement is actually a life dedicated to God. And so in Christ, we have a life modeled for us. We can state it even stronger than this. We have a life given to us, that we can begin to participate in that's not oriented to death, but oriented to life, resurrection life. And so likewise, we need to locate the point, when was Jesus made perfect? And how was this brought about? So as to understand the importance of that perfection as it's being mediated to us. I'm going to claim this perfection is specifically connected with his resurrection. I don't mean to make this simplistic. I don't mean to say it's only this. But I want to argue that it's certainly connected to his resurrection so that we can understand that Jesus' perfection is not simply uh, connected with his death on the cross. His resurrection is not simply tagged on to his death, but it is the basis of his life and of the life that is mediated to us in his high priesthood. Uh, That is, it's his enduring life. It's his indestructible life. Hebrews equates Christ's priesthood as his causal power of perfecting. What does he perfect in us? Uh, Again, if we understand that the impure or the imperfect, the law, you know, such as the law of the human conscience that the writer is going to talk about, is made impure or imperfect due to its contamination by death, then we can understand why perfection is accomplished with the kind of life he gives. And even in his death, I think we have to understand, as with Yom Kippur, that it is a life dedicated to God, that the sacrifice offered in the temple on the Day of Atonement was not a, in other words, God doesn't want death. It's not that death is brought before God. And so too with Christ, it's his resurrected life, one that has passed through human suffering. That's what the writer is arguing here. Uh, 
in every way that he's experienced what we've experienced and yet he has not succumbed to this suffering uh, that he has not succumbed to the orientation to sin or to sin and death he's passed through this having passed through the suffering and death he is made perfect in his resurrection we can say that his work is accomplished So he is certainly a high priest acquainted with our weaknesses, but he is also one who is able to strengthen us in the midst of our own suffering and weakness because he's overcome this orientation. He's overcome it in his life. Certainly he's overcome it in his death. But the fact is that this is completed, you know, the, the reality of it is made available in his resurrection. So too, the Jesus passage into the heavens you know, in the right, the writer is going to talk about two things: that he penetrates the human heart, the human conscience, simultaneous with his penetration of the heavens. Why is this the case? Uh, why is it that it's brought home? You know, this is his high priesthood: is that he's passed through the heavens and thus is able to cleanse the conscience. He's endured suffering. But he's also attained enduring life which he mediates to our conscience in the very presence of God where he is seated at the right hand of God. So what afflicts the heart and conscience of humankind is the orientation to death, is death itself, sin and death. It's the taking up of death or the fear of death as a way of life. That's the orientation, that sin, that Christ is defeated. Hebrews compares the blood of Jesus to the blood of Abel and the blood of bulls and goats. There is a spilt blood, a blood or life which is consumed by death. And this blood is not a sacrifice for God. This blood is not efficacious. Violence, war, human, you know, the, the whole idea of these things is an abomination. Those are the things that have to be purged. All violence and death and anything to do with death has to be purged from the temple and has to be purged from the human conscience. On the other hand, there is a blood or life which is not subject to death. The, the life and death and resurrection of Christ. That is which, uh, that's what cleanses our conscience from sin Because it cleanses our conscience from death. That is, we can live out resurrection life. The glory to which man is called is that he should grow more godlike by growing ever more human. That is, as we realize the fullness of the humanity of Christ, at the same time, we realize the fullness of his power of resurrection, his indestructible life. So how is Christ made perfect? And I think the, the point here is many connect his being made perfect exclusively with his death. And then they take his death to be the atoning sacrifice which he offers up in the Holy of Holies. I think that is precisely a misunderstanding to isolate his death from his life and resurrection. So the offering of Jesus is the presentation of his entire life. It's the presentation of himself before God. And this is the meaning of the atonement. This is actually a more literal reading of Hebrews 
that says he passed into the heavens. When did that happen? Well, it happened at his resurrection and ascension. Now, I don't mean to be simplistic in this and say that, you know, we have passages in Scripture where, you know, John can talk about, Jesus is talking about that his death has already occurred or the, the power of his death even before he's died. And so I think we can talk about the cross in these terms, but we should never then exclude the, the whole process of Jesus passing into the heavens. And I think the writer of Hebrews is literally thinking of the resurrection and ascension as the point at which he takes up his high priesthood. It's unlikely Hebrews is thinking of the cross as the place, the place that Jesus suffered of, or of his offering. Uh, or simply of the death of Jesus as the sacrifice that was offered. It says, uh, as he goes on to say, Jesus' offering was presented to God in heaven, the very place where he can serve as a high priest. And then later he's going to describe that, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father when he assumes his priesthood. That is, he's not going anywhere. He's already accomplished everything. As a human being, the Son, Jesus suffered, died, he was perfected, and his elevation to the pinnacle of the world to come is a function of his humanity's being made immortal. That is, it's in his resurrected humanity that he sits at the right hand of the Father. So Hebrews begins by drawing on our bodily development. You know, he talks about the uh, he talks about being immature or infant-like. And then he talks about the telion, or the mature or perfect. The importance of this is that, uh, you know, that uh, the solid food belongs for the mature rather than the perfect. And this rendering could prevent us from any, seeing the continuity. I think 5.14, as we move from 5.14 into 6.1, where he says, going on toward perfection well probably we should say going on toward maturity that is that the perfection the telos that we're working out is a continual process hebrews presents christ three times as the source of our perfection in chapter 10 11 and 12 between the claim that christ was made perfect and that he is the source of perfection Hebrews contrasts Christ's ability to perfect with the inability of the old covenant to do so four times in seven, uh, you know, nine and ten in various in, in different places there. And the placement of these passages demonstrates then the unfolding of the argument of Hebrews. If the first covenant made perfect, we would not need another house beyond that of Moses and David. Chapter 3. If the first covenant made perfect, Joshua's rest would have been sufficient. Chapter 4. If the first covenant made perfect, the Levitical priests would have not had to repeat their sacrifice. And actually that's chapters 5, 7, 9, and 10. If the first covenant made perfect, we would not need the priesthood of Melchizedek. Chapter 5, that we've just read about. Chapter 7. If the first covenant made perfect, God would not have promised another one in Jeremiah. 
You know, the, the law written on the heart, that is, that we're actually transformed in chapter 8. If the first covenant made perfect, the prophets would not have prophesied. This is chapter 10. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. If the first covenant made perfect, then Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses would have already received the rest, but they still wait for it. For what are they waiting that they might be made perfect. This is 1139 to 40. If the first covenant made perfect, Mount Sinai would have sufficed and we would not hope for Mount Zion, but Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, chapter 12. And so the incompleteness in the first covenant is found uh, in the hope that Christ's perfection secures. He secures what the first covenant did not secure. He secures the rest. He secures the true hope. And so the perfection, the achievement, the, you know, the execution of this thing, the totality of it is the, the notion in the word telos. Uh, the goal, as he says, as Tim, Paul will say in Timothy, the goal of our, our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. So the continuity between chapter 5, 14 and the admonition in 6, 1, go on toward perfection, go on toward maturity, uh, pass from infancy and maturity, and we are called then to go on to perfection, which like the full development of our humanity, leaves the immaturity behind. When we do we do this? I mean, obviously, as we live out resurrection life, but when we achieve the resurrection, then we've achieved the fullness of the hope in Christ. If the first covenant, we could have said about all of these things I just listed, had not pointed in the direction of this perfection, then Christ could not make perfect. So the, the comparison here, it does not denigrate Israel. Indeed, even though it claims that covenant is passing away, it is only passing away because of the greater thing, that which has come, which is perfect. That is, when Christ is the perfect high priest, that's the whole argument, the true temple, the true sacrifice. And so there seems to be three qualifications. His ability, number one, to sympathize with those for whom he ministers. He's called by God. And the fact is the second. And the fact that having passed through Jesus. Uh, he, uh, or, I'm sorry. Having passed through death. He attains a life that endures. So 5.18. Uh, 5.8 to 10 claims that Jesus had to undergo sufferings. So as to attain perfection. He had to pass through suffering death so as to attain the attain the perfection of resurrection and so the telos the end point is the necessary qualification here the perfection is necessary for jesus to be high priest so that we might have an everlasting enduring salvation based on the enduring life of christ so he has to possess it first jesus has to possess it and it's not, uh, it, it is not simply his, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, I think it's his ministry, 
but it's also his exaltation. When he is glorified is what this passage has just said. Uh, After making the cleansing of sin in chapter 1 and chapter 10, it says he was invited to sit on the right hand of the Father at the, the Father's throne. I think that's the point in which he's glorified, perfected. He receives the fullness of his high priesthood. 2.9, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor on account of his suffering and death. And then also in chapter 5, it follows upon this suffering. I don't know if I'm losing you in the details here. But the point is, it's not in the midst of his suffering. It's not in the midst of his death. But it's having passed through his suffering and death. So Jesus can said uh, he's perfected once he's completed this. So the writer is pointing after his death, I think, to his resurrection, to his ascension. And then he's achieved perfection. In chapter 7, this is the point of the difference between Christ and the Aaronic high priests. It says Jesus remains a high priest forever on the basis of his indestructible life. The Levitical priests succumbed to death. Yes, Jesus succumbed to death just like them, but he was raised to an indestructible life. So being subject to death prior to resurrection is not to have achieved the telos. It's not to have achieved the perfection. 725, Jesus always lives to intercede for his people. He's achieved this indestructible life. Jesus is in this state of perfection forever. Every high priest is called by God, but Jesus remains and lives seated at the right hand of the Father. So I think we can narrow the point when he achieved this, not to the cross, not exclusive of the cross, of not having passed through, but to the resurrection, to the ascension. Jesus' high priestly service is one he accomplishes subsequent to the empty tomb. Right? The day of Easter, resurrection. That's precisely what he says in the giving of the Holy Spirit, that I leave that the Spirit might come, that we might begin to enjoy his high priestly ministry. He mediates life to us in and through the Spirit, in and through his resurrection and ascension. So his priesthood is like that of Melchizedek, because of, you know, Melchizedek, uh, in terms of the literature, has an enduring life, not being subject to death. Though at one time, as long as he was liable to die, uh, as long as he would suffer death, then he's not achieved it. So this accords with the idea that uh, he's passed through the heavens. I think literally talking about the ascension. Not figuratively that he passed through the heavens. I think the writer is saying, no, literally on the day of his ascension, he passed from this world to the right hand of the Father. And so that's when his perfection is achieved. He becomes the high priest. Uh, he, you know, it, uh, his perfection is, stands between his death, his elevation to the heavenly high priesthood. And then after his death, God brought Jesus out of the realm of death into this life. And the eschatological resurrection then is on the basis, the hope of that is upon his mediating that to us. According 
to the both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper pure in conscience since they relate only to food and drink or various washings. Uh, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is, he's passed out of creation into heaven, which he did at the ascension. Jesus entered the Holy of Holies. Uh, he's come into the deep part of the human conscience when he's passed, you know, uh, in the, uh, uh, beyond the heavens, it actually says. And the word, can, this word then can penetrate. The word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword because it is now employed then. Uh, in, in, uh, the word has become equated then, the word of Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish for, uh, to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And that's always the imagery of life and death that he's passed uh, out of death into life. And so the process of being sanctified or being made perfect, uh, his being made the high priest is this perfecting this per, uh, uh, or giving this perfecting power of resurrection life. Uh, as 10.4 says, by, offering, uh, by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And now we can approach God with confidence. Right now we have come to the heavenly Zion. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels. Uh, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled bud which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel was spilled and cries out. But the blood of Christ is dedicated to God as a life given to God and an enduring life. So we wait the final inheritance and we'll be perfected. Chapter 11 describes we will be perfected together. Not as the, you know, the Nazarene church has it, we are perfected at some point in our life. No, I think that's our resurrection life that we enjoy. Um, let us draw near with a sincere heart, he says in chapter 10, in full assurance of faith. What faith? Resurrection faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. How is our conscience cleansed? It says our bodies are washed with pure water. Well, water is representative of life and what we're cleansed of is death. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What hope? The hope of resurrection. For he who promised is faithful. Faithful for what? He's faithful to give us life in the face of death because he's achieved that life. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking the assembling of the saints together. I think that's a key part of this. That the place that we come to belief in this resurrection life and enjoy the power of the Spirit is in and through the assembling of the saints. And so he, see, he uses two quotations here and I'll, I'll bring this to a close with this. But he says two things uh, that today I've begotten you. You know, you, you are my son. And then he ties this into the priesthood of Melchizedek. 
And so the begotten Son, you know, the, the Davidic throne, all of the humanity of Christ, is brought together with the heavenly high priesthood. Heaven and earth, we might say, are fused in Christ. The humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ are permanently fused, and thus we as humans can enjoy uh, the deity uh, of God. We can enjoy it through Christ. He's not conflated, the writer's not conflated Jesus coming into possession uh, with his death. But rather he's pictured it as this whole movement. Jesus' priesthood is an extension of his sonship, uh, which is a necessary part of the kind of priest he is, but he, the sonship is perfected when he achieves an indestructible life. His cre- perfect creaturely obedience restores God, God's creation such that he can offer it. That is, he offers his own performance of this perfection. It says this in the days of his flesh that he's you know, passed through and will perfect it. So let me, uh, let me close with a passage that is actually from Second Peter. But I think it's getting at what we're describing. Uh, it is the idea of salvation as a process. In the Eastern Church they call it theosis. The life, death, resurrection of Christ is, is the thing that saves and that we enjoy. 2 Peter 1, 2-8 Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Of course, topic talking here about the promise of life. Resurrection life. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, the indestructible life, having escaped the corruption. We've talked about the contrast between corruption and glory. That glory is God's incorruptibility in the face of the corruption and immorality of death. That is in the world uh, run by lust. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's describing a life process in which we live out in a practical, real-world sort of way uh, the resurrection life that the high priest mediates to us. Let's sing our hymn of it.